This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 3rd of December 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from our headquarters in Zurich. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, why has Brazil never before fielded a World Cup player with the number 24? Also ahead, Vladimir Zelensky is taking on the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And a bit later on today's show, we'll be joined by Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule. First, though, here's the news. Cities across China have lifted more restrictions following protests, despite daily cases nearing all-time highs. Testing booths have been shut in Beijing, and commuters no longer need negative COVID tests to travel. The southern city of Shenzhen has also eased rules to use public transport and enter parks. The World Health Organization estimates 90% of the world population has some resistance to COVID now. The Director-General of the WHO says we're much closer to being over the emergency phase of the pandemic due to people having immunity from a prior infection or vaccination. And Switzerland has advanced to the last 16 of the Qatar World Cup. They beat Serbia 3-2 last night in an intense match. Next up, the Swiss will face off against Portugal on Tuesday. Hello and welcome to our very special and very festive broadcast from our Zurich studios, where the Monocle Christmas market is just gearing up to open. With me in the studio right now is the travel and culture author, Noelle Alejandra Salmi. Welcome to you, Noelle. Um, did you celebrate the Swiss win last night? I'm talking about football here. I have to be specific because that wouldn't naturally occur to me. <laughs> but we were walking with, with my um, producer, Louise Kramer, last mm. night. We were walking through Zurich and we've heard a few cars honking their horns but not nearly so much as you would expect if you were in London for instance. <laughs> yes well exactly we are in Switzerland so everything is a little bit uh, more toned down here but yes we did celebrate it was a really exciting game. It took us a while to figure out why they all looked so sweaty and we realized that they were dumping water on themselves in between. Uh, <laughs> <when they went laughs> um, is football a thing for you? Uh, yes, it actually very much is. Uh, my mother's Uruguayan, uh, and uh, and my dad lives in Brazil, so Urugu football is kind of in, in my blood. <laughs> well, if your dad lives in Brazil, you can probably explain the story from El País, which says Brazil has never fielded a World Cup player with the number 24. Uh, yes, that's quite interesting. Uh, and in fact, uh, even in their local soccer teams, uh, football teams, they don't have uh, many 24 players. Um, and, uh, and as we know, it, the interesting twist is here is that the number uh, 24 is associated with homosexuality in Brazil. Uh, and as we know, um, many We don't know. Teams... I don't know. Why is it associated with... Oh, yes. Well, I, I was, uh, it is associated with... Uh, the, the number 24 uh, lends back to a game called Jogo do Bicho, Game of the Animal. And it is uh, a gambling game which has been illegalized in practically every Brazilian state save one. But it sort of looks like a... Um, like a bingo board a little bit, and but it's, it's much more complicated than that. But the number 24 is a deer. And in Portuguese, veado with an E 
is the deer and with an I, it's pronounced practically the same, is sort of a derogatory term, term for a gay person. So the number 24 has always been associated with that and, uh, and players don't want to wear it. Um, but the interesting thing is here, uh, it's that it was actually uh, FIFA that told Brazil, uh, sort of in this effort to be a little bit more um, willing, a little bit more open to LGBTQ rights and the pressure it's come under, they told Brazil that they had to field a player with the number 24. And that's exactly what they did last night um, uh, with the player... Um, Gleason Bremer. Gleason Bremer, thanks so much. Um, yeah, not that Brazil won last night. They actually lost, but uh, but they... They're still going ahead as the first in their group, so that's okay. And um, it's interesting because um, Neymar, uh, the Brazilian player, the famous one, he has expressed support for Bolsonaro, who is a pretty extremist. Um, and not many of the players are really that liberal, but I have to say the good thing is that Richarlison has expressed um, support for LGBTQ rights, and I think it's moving uh, the team in the right direction. Absolutely. Let's move to China now, because the New York Times has a chilling piece on how the Chinese security apparatus is tracking down protesters, I mean, even days after they've actually been demonstrating. Uh, yes, that's right. It really is uh, quite chilling. Uh, these protesters um, have done everything right. Maybe they've worn bandanas, goggles. They um, maybe changed their clothes even to, to lose a trail and thought that they were okay and then have been shocked to find police uh, coming to their doors uh, a couple of days later. And uh, as the New York Times reports, China has spent the last decade deploying millions upon millions of security cameras on, at intersections, at building entrances, and purchasing the facial recognition software that will make those effective. Um, but another tool that has really caught protesters off guard are the phone trackers. These are small boxes with antennas that look like cell towers, yet they provide police a record of all the phones that pass by. Uh, so, uh, you know, many residents have known about their surveillance systems, but they didn't really think they applied to them. And now they've been shocked to find that in uh, middle class residents in the wealthier cities are also being tracked down. When the police find these protesters, they tend to sort of shake them down and say, don't do this again. The protesters are then deleting apps uh, like Telegram that they've used to coordinate uh, these meetings and to spread images uh, overseas. Uh, but uh, and many of the protesters told the Times, OK, we we're, we're not going to do this again. We're scared. But a few have said that they feel the need to keep on protesting. But I mean, what's really interesting is that uh, last weekend we saw the biggest uh, demonstrations on the streets since Tiananmen Square back in 1989. Right. Uh, and since then, the Chinese government has backed down in terms of, of COVID responses, as as we heard in our headlines. Now, they've been very careful to do that so it doesn't look like uh, Xi right. Jinping has, has uh, right. you know, g g given in to demands in any way. Nevertheless, they have backed down, and I think that's absolutely fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating. Obviously, they've realized that uh, that this strategy couldn't go on forever. But now, of course, we have the issue of so many unvaccinated elderly citizens and not enough ICU beds. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, but at least those who are healthy, who really should be able to have a free life, are going to be able to go about and. Uh, get out of their apartments. Yeah. Now, Christmas time, a time of giving, of love and of charity. Uh, what we don't want to see is uh, sort of wars between different faiths or certainly within the same faiths. Uh, and uh, we go now to uh, Ukraine uh, and this report that Zelensky is cracking down on the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. 
Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, in a speech, uh, an evening speech this week, he said that he would defend that Ukraine should defend its spiritual independence. Uh, and he quoted, he said, we will never allow anyone to build an empire in the Ukrainian soul. Uh, he said his government plans to draft a bill that would make it impossible for Russian-influenced religious organizations to operate in Ukraine. Um, and in fact, the Ukrainian, the Orthodox, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, unlike the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has been for centuries subordinate to the Russian Orthodox Church. And its leader, as we know, is Patriarch Kirill, who is, has strong ties to President Putin. He's called his tenure a miracle of God. Um, and, uh, and of course, he's endorsed the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so one interesting thing that tipped this off is there's a famous cave monastery in Kiev, in Kiev and uh, it was searched by uh, several um, agents of the Domestic Secret Service, and they found a lot of believers there singing about the awakening of Mother Russia. Um, by now, most Ukrainians are actually not part of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, they've switched instead to the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, which is an entity independent of Moscow. And it was a big diplomatic achievement for Kyiv to be recognized by the uh, ecumen ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople as independent from Russia. Well, absolutely. But I mean, these these sort of internecine re religious wars is, is, is not what it was set up for originally, was it? And particularly at this time, and you must be very aware of this, being called Noel, what a fantastically uh, appropriate name for this time of year. But when we look back at the, the, the sort of beginnings of Christianity, of course, what we're talking about is, uh, is a migrant woman, is a refugee, a pregnant refugee, who treks across borders, who is rejected everywhere, who's looking for asylum, who's travelling with a man who is not the father of her baby. <laughs> uh, and, uh, of course, she is eventually given given refuge and, and, and taken in. And, and that, to me, although I'm... I'm not really a person of faith, but that would seem to me what, what Christianity is about and is that, that love and charity, as I said at the beginning. Uh, coming full circle, of course, we look at the current situation in the world now uh, where you have almost exactly the same thing going on. People coming from persecuted nations just trying to find a bit of safety in the world and it's so so difficult for them. Uh, but in Switzerland, what we're finding is that uh, cantons are actually dealing with this themselves instead of the federal government. Tell us some more on that. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, usually the uh, uh, refugees and asylum seekers are the purview of the federal government, but uh, the federal government, uh, Switzerland has received so many refugees this year uh, that uh, the federal government is now sort of, they can't process them all in their normal uh, centers, in their federal centers, so they have been distributing them out to the cantons. And Canton Zurich uh, currently has... Uh, over 14,000 people seeking protection, most of whom, uh, the vast majority of whom are Ukrainian refugees, and they expect that number to hit 15,000 by the end of the year, which is the total number of asylum seekers in all of Switzerland last year. Uh, uh, I'm just going to interrupt you there because the most fantastic vision in this huge fur <laughs> hat uh, has just arrived in the studio. I'm talking, of course, of our, editor in, uh, our editorial director, Tyler Brule, who's going to join us a little bit later on in the programme. Uh, we're also going to be hearing from a number of stall holders, uh, various people who are here. We've got such exciting stalls coming up. Uh, I know that we have, well, in a moment, we'll be speaking to Brenda, who, in fact, we know very well from our 
our London headquarters. We're going to be talking to a lawyer who upcycles old suits. Uh, we'll be uh, talking to people who make swimming trunks in a very high-tech way. Uh, we'll be finding out all about high-quality hand creams, uh, and uh, we'll be finding fr- we'll be finding more detail from uh, a, a, a perfumier. So uh, lots of that coming up uh, in 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 the day ahead, because of course all of these stallholders are here, and I think we're almost ready for Brenda to join us. Uh, she is coming with her jewellery now. It's exquisite stuff. It's actually in front of me now, and she's not here yet. So while she's not here, I'm actually going to start slipping on the rings. <laughs> what do you think? Isn't that absolutely gorgeous? That is absolutely gorgeous. So I'm not sure what it is. I think it's gold, but it's got lots of different um, lots of different stones in there. And then these ones here, which look kind of enamel, again with stones. And I, you know what? I think we're going to have to Instagram that later so people can see exactly what it is that I'm talking about. And Those colours are amazing. They really are amazing, aren't they? Um, just before she comes, I think that we should have a little chat about the world's most expensive hot dog. Now, just to be clear, that's not a hot dog that's on sale here at the market. We do have fabulous foodstuffs on sale. <laughs> uh, but this one is just outrageous because it's, what, more than $250? Uh, Franks, yes, uh, it is crazy. Um, and the combination of ingredients are a little bit disturbing, I have to say. What's in it? So this hot dog uh, was for sale, is now available, in fact, at the Christmas market in Lucerne. It comes with a saffron bun, a Kobe beef sausage, white Alba truffles, Cristal champagne foam, a gilded peppercorn, and uh, to top it all off, chocolate crumble. It sounds absolutely disgusting. Well, I think everything sort of works together until you get to the chocolate crumble. That's where they've lost me. (laughs) And the gilded peppercorn, what is that? Well, I think it's a peppercorn that's uh, in gold. Well, let's talk about gold because I'm joined (laughs) by Brenda Tui. Brenda, uh, of course, many people will know you because you run Midori House in London like a sergeant major. Thank you. The nicest (laughs) sergeant major possible. But you do make the building run extremely efficiently. But who knew you have this other sideline? I do. I have a little side hustle, Knightsbrid Rocks, and we sell vintage and contemporary uh, fine jewels. So uh, very sustainable. We have recycled gold, repurposed gemstones, and we also bring things in um, from secondary markets uh, to show again, to offer again for sale. Um, well, before you got here, I was yes. actually trying on the jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I was asking how you might describe this one. So it's gold, but lots of multicolored jewels. Now, that is a very special ring. That is an H stern ring from the 1950s, and it's called the Sputnik ring. And when uh, H. Stern left Germany to move to Brazil, he showcased in that ring all of the fabulous semi-precious jo- uh, jewels that are available and gemstones in Brazil. So there's tourmalines, citrines, um, amethysts, uh, topaz, and in the Sputnik uh, situation, in the Sputnik style, um, to mirror the Sputnik that was being launched around the same time. So uh, it's quite a a famous, um, iconic ring from the H. Stern. 
jeweler. Absolutely, yeah. and it, I mean, it has the price tag to match. <laughs> <laughs> well, it comes. We have it in various sizes, so I think you've got the extra large, Georgina. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's absolutely gorgeous, and I would keep it on unless I thought that I was depriving you of nearly two thousand. <laughs> absolutely gorgeous. And now these ones here, there's like a, a sort of a, a flight, you might say, if you were describing mine, of uh, of four. Uh, is this enamel? Yes, it is. Uh, Italian enamel, repurposed gemstones, and recycled gold. So they have been created by us. Uh, I mean, they they are candy-like, I think, they are in their style. Um, fabulous. I just love the idea of the recycled gold. Yeah, I think it's... It's, it's really important, and also the recycled and repurposed gemstones. Um, yeah, and you know, it, it just makes things more sustainable, doesn't it? And of course, if you're buying things from the secondary market, um, they are more sustainable. I mean, they're out there already. They have been created, so we're not uh, using more energy to create more things, but they've just been put together. They're really cute. So, Brenda, I'm, re I'm really curious how yeah. you managed to do this alongside your full-time job. Well, we've been doing it for about 10 years. Um, Katie Kelly and I, Knightsbridge Rocks, uh, had a love of jewellery, and about 10 years ago, just after Christmas, I think, we said, hey, why don't we, you know, we love jewels, why don't we start selling them? And uh, we started in a very small way. We do a lot of pop-ups in London, in Italy, now in Zurich. As my son said, we've taken the business international. Um, <laughs> we're available at Knightsbridge Rocks uh, or on our website. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a, a side hustle. It's quite easy because I love it. We're very passionate about jewellery. Uh, so it's my great love. So it's super easy. Well, I think so, it's absolutely beautiful. It's beautiful. It? So Brenda, um, speaking of taking it international, have you been to the H. Stern Museum in Rio de Janeiro? No, I have not. I have not been there. It is amazing because you actually see all of these stones and you sort of get the history of where they come from in Brazil. Uh, it's, it's quite something. And you see the artisans at work as well. I mean, it's wonderful the way that uh, the Saatchi Gallery had the fantastic uh, Tiffany exhibition, which was incredible in the way they showcased everything in their windows. And uh, the Design Museum had the Van Cleef and Arpels. Um, but here... We've got the Knightsbridge Rocks. Exactly. Mm. But yeah. who actually makes it for you then? I mean, are you hands-on with this? Uh, absolutely hands-on. So the vintage obviously has been made, created already. And uh, the Italian enamel uh, is created in Italy by a special <laughs> jeweler that we have been working with uh, for about 10 years. And the we have another kind of uh, uh, another ring, which is quite abstract, kind of modernist ring, um, which is on show here at Monocle Zurich, and that was created in London by a goldsmith there. So, yeah. Fabulous stuff. Mm. Uh, have you had a chance to have a look around yet? Who else? Who's your competition here? Uh, we have had a look around. I mean, I think our main competition could be the Monocle, Monocle subscriptions, um, which I see just adjacent to us. Um, we have wonderful things, wonderful things on sale. And a wonderful thing just uh, turned up opposite you, actually, Brenda. Who's oh. that? That's Mr. Brule. Good morning, Brenda. Good morning, Tyler. Good morning, Georgina. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Tyler, it's lovely to have you here. Uh, it's just all kicking off, and now it can really start because you've arrived. I have arrived. Maybe about 15 minutes late. But anyway, <laughs> I've done sort of the tour, sort of like the, the sort of Santa's Village mayor, uh, and everyone is sort of in full flow. Subscriptions are being sold. Uh, and I, well, it's a bit smelly outside because the, well, the raclette cheese has just come out of the boxes. So uh, anyway, and that's sort of getting fired up now as well. well 
Well, so tell us what we should be looking out for today. I mean, what's it all for? Well, of it's well, of course, it's all it's all for the season. And I, I don't know if you're sort of looking for a plug that this is for a big cause, but it's not. It's it's <laughs> it's, it's for the cause of uh, of good commerce. Um, but I would say it's also this is about community. Uh, this is we've been doing this since we launched in Zurich. I believe this is edition five or probably no edition four that we've done this market. Of course, we'll be together uh, in London next week uh, when, of course, we have the bigger version uh, of this. Uh, though this is quite expanded in size. And I think one thing that's interesting this year is uh, Rafi, who's the coordinator. You'll notice, Georgina, there's just there's many more tables this year. So there's many more vendors than before. Uh, a variety, of course, uh, of, of new companies and brands uh, that are here as well. And that will also be the same thing next weekend uh, in London as well. I was really surprised by just how much it's, it's expanded. I mean, I remember trying to come last year and uh, I think quarantine rules were, were, were dropped the day before and I couldn't I couldn't travel here. No, in, indeed. I was, I was actually trying to sort of uh, rewind. Like, was it was it masked last year? Was it unmasked here? I mean, it was it was it was it was generally sort of quite relaxed. And and what's amazing is that we actually we managed to do this Christmas market actually throughout the pandemic. I mean, also it really in sort of like the worst hours of 2020. It was actually probably our biggest because out the back, because just just behind uh, this building, there is quite a large parking lot. And we also had another bar set up outside. And somehow somehow um, the youth of Zurich sort of discovered that uh, that they could get Glühwein and, and we sort of went around the back and they were like felt like there's 2,000 kids in the back anyway we're still here operating as a business absolutely uh, and and so much bigger and so much I would want to say better this year but but it's always I mean it's always good yeah I, I think it's just also nice that we brought in uh, a variety of uh, yeah just new talent uh, and a different a different mix uh, which is which is great so we have a, maybe there's probably a little bit later we've got a great furniture producer uh, from the Engadine I should say from Graubünden, uh, who do absolutely beautiful pieces. Uh, so it's the first time that we've gone and done, I would say, sort of pret-a-porter furniture uh, at scale here as well. Of course, they will take uh, special orders. We have Hermansen here. I believe they drove all night from Copenhagen, not on their bicycles, but they're here to flog their bicycles. <laughs> Uh, and there's also a, a lot of dogs, as there always are in Zurich. In fact, Noel, is, does one of them, the particularly noisy one, belong to you? Uh, yes, I'm afraid it does. <laughs> always, always. There's always one. Uh, Tyler, we were talking about this yesterday. We went uh, with, along with my producer, Laura. We went off to a, a dinner here, and there were five people and six dogs uh, at the dinner. And they all seemed to think that this was completely and utterly normal for Switzerland. It, it is, and I sort of I wonder if you know in this sort of world of I don't know uh, what can we say of constant offence uh, and uh, yeah swirling allergies and all types of things. Will this sort of be like the last bastion of freedom for man and his dog? Because <laughs> I, I could you know I, obviously Switzerland uh, loves a referendum. But I don't know if I could ever sort of see a referendum around you know, no dogs in in restaurants. I mean it is just part of the fabric of of society, and I, and I think it would be a complete meltdown. Uh, people would go to arms, I believe, if you said actually you can't bring your dog into the restaurant. Well. And of course, we have them in Midori House all the time, as Andrew Tuck talks about in his column today uh, in, in our weekend edition. He's talking about his dog, Macy, and how she's kind of really rather taken over. It, well, absolutely. And this has become a bit of a fixture. And as you said, there's a lot of dogs at Midori House in London and a lot of them, of course, trying to um, ape Macy's style. Uh, it, it's interesting how comfortable uh, the dogs become because we also heard that our Luc Courtier, uh, who's second in command of our advertising team, uh, his whippet was sort of was found down the street at the cafe, but just it just knew the route to the cafe. So as you know, I mean, that corner of Manchester Street and Dorset Street is quite scary. I'm, I mean, I've not 
what, and we've been there for what, 15 years now, uh, almost uh, 14 years. I'm not seeing a smash up on that corner, but I think you'd have to be a very brave whippet to uh, to brave that corner. Absolutely. Unlike here, where you everybody just crosses the road when they're told to. Exactly. And also, we have this rather annoying 30 kilometer uh, speed limit um, in, in most of the city right now, which is, I mean, I'm not sure what that's going to damage. I mean, the bikes are going faster than the cars. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, Tyler, we're going to be checking in with you throughout the day and throughout with various... Indeed. And also, we're here tomorrow, aren't we, Georgina? Very early special edition of Monocle on Sunday as well, which uh, is going to be a lovely lineup. Uh, and the last edition of the show, which is actually uh, coming from Zurich this year, uh, because then we'll be in London next weekend. Exactly. And I think we've got Florian Egli with us tomorrow. I, I believe we do. I, I, De Desiree's uh, shake, nodding her head. Yes. Uh, yes, we will see him. And of course, you know, many, uh, certainly many vendors uh, and, and of course, some other guests as well. Absolutely. Well, Tyler, as I say, we'll be checking in with you a lot during the day. I just want to go back to you, Noel, and just uh, flicking through the rest of the papers. Looking at this one um, that Tyler was talking about, sort of uh, uh, you know, people with uh, allergies and, and, and I suppose what he's talking about is freedom and liberation to, to do and be as you as you like. Uh, but it seems that there are a lot of Asian American students who are hiding their heritage. Why is that? Uh, yes, that's exactly right. As the New York Times was reporting, uh, Asian American high school students are being asked to hide their Asian heritage on college applications. Um, in fact, even before that, uh, college counselors are, ask, are advising Asian American students to pursue less typically Asian activities, uh, like not playing chess, perhaps not playing cello or violin, and pursuing sort of activities that that don't come off as what is considered this typically Asian thing. And the backdrop for this is a case that's currently before the U.S. Supreme Court that accuses Harvard as dis of discriminating against Asian American students um, who are passed over in favor of less qualified students of other ethnicities. Um, the plaintiffs in this case are students for fair admissions. And they say that compared to other racial groups, applicants of Asian descent consistently receive lower personal rating, which is something like self-confidence, likability, and kindness. Um, so it's interesting to note that the Students for Fair Admissions is actually a, a group that was conceived by conservative Americans who want to challenge affirmative action. Uh, which is the practice of actively promoting black and brown candidates who have been, um, in order to address the effects of his systemic and historic racism. Um, but uh, the interesting thing is that these students do say that they have had better chances, better luck, not checking off that they're Asian American. Uh, and really, uh, and in fact, there have been popular test prep guides that advise students to try to conceal their racial identity. But I mean, this also comes off the back of that great big scandal where you had people who were extremely wealthy paying for their kids to get in. Yes, I mean, the whole college admissions issue in the US is a bit of a mess because on the one hand, um, in fact, this, even this article quotes some Asian students who respected the fact that there is diversity on campus and they're happy to see this, this different group of, of kids being able to be admitted. On the other hand, uh, there's always a pretty sizable chunk of the student body reserved for legacies, um, it's children of alumni, and for children of big donors. Yeah. And, uh, and people will do anything they can 
to get a leg up to get into this extremely, uh, extremely competitive system. I mean, Stanford University accepts less than 5% of its applicants. Oh, yeah. Uh, before we go, Noel, I need to delve into the origins of your name. Were you born at Christmas time? Uh, my birthday is on the 13th of December, so 12 days before Christmas. And what is your best Christmas ever? What do you remember from Christmas's past? Uh, well, our Christmases are always spent up in the mountains. Uh, so really the best Christmas is waking up to a big bunch of snow and uh, opening presents and having a, my husband is Finnish. So we have a rice porridge uh, in the morning. It's actually quite good. It's, it's very slow cooked and creamy and tasty with cinnamon and cardamom. And inside one lucky uh, Christmas day eater will find a, a, an almond that will uh, grant them luck for the rest of the day, for the rest of the year. That's lovely. Do you remember a particular childhood Christmas that really just sparks your imagination still? Um, well, so my Christmases, my childhood Christmases were always spent in Brazil. So, uh, so really it's sort of like you get up in the morning and you have your wonderful breakfast of Brazilian treats and then you go off to the beach so it's probably not your <laughs> what one would typically think of a, of a Christmas. Well I mean same for mine because they were all spent in Zimbabwe where it is of course summer and so we quite often have a barbecue for Christmas or a braai or braifles as we would call right. it uh, back home so so no, but, and yet you'd still kind of decorate with fake snow and robins neither of which have ever been seen there. <laughs> oh absolutely I mean you see shop windows in Brazil with that spray painted fake snow snow and people getting white. No one gets a real Christmas tree, obviously, but they buy the white Christmas trees to, to look like they're snow covered. What are you going to do this year? Uh, well, this year we're actually going to be in Canada. Um, so, uh, yeah, we spent a lot of time in Whistler in Canada, and right now they have a lot of snow, so we'll be doing some skiing and and, uh, and we'll have a real tree and real snow. Lovely. I'm going off to New York to stay with my brother and then going out to his place in the Hamptons. So that's oh, where we'll be for Christmas. And wonderful. I'm very, very much looking forward to that. Uh, Noel, thank you so much for talking to us today. That was our regular Monocle contributor, Noel Alejandra Salmi. Uh, also, we were speaking to Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule and Brenda Tui. And of course, she is one of the stallholders here at our Christmas market in Zurich. Do stop by if you're in the area. We have almost 30 stalls selling everything from activeware to pinewood furniture and notebooks. And that's all for this special edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer in London, Nora Hull, our producers in Zurich, Laura Kramer and Desiree Bandley. And Monocle on Saturday returns next week, but we'll have much more coverage from Zurich across the next couple of days, including Monocle on Sunday, which airs at 10am Swiss time. And our editorial director, Tyler Brule, will be your host for that. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'll be with you all day, but for the moment, thanks for listening. <laughs>